Welcome back, listeners, and congratulations for stumbling onto part two of the Saraswati of the British Raj, India's first female social reformer. So if you listen to part one, you'll know that we discussed mainly uh, Bandita Ramabai's um, religious standing and how this helped to form her path into her reformation movements. So... But before we start, I thought I would introduce you to a couple of boys I know. The history boys, to be specific. How can I put this nicely? They're a bunch of awesome guys with crazy antics and even crazier tactics to teach you history on their podcast. But instead of letting me describe them, I'll let them do it. So enjoy this little snippet. I'm Tyler Armentrout. I'm Christopher Whedon. I'm Zach Mech. And I'm Jerry Nash. And we're the History Boys. And you are listening to The Power of Pesa with our good friend Serena, who is a real historian. Unlike us, we are just a bunch of history enthusiasts who like to drink and yell about history. So if you like your comedy with history or history with comedy, then you should listen to The History Boys. And that's B-O-I-Z anywhere you find your podcasts. Love you, bye. Well, I did warn you guys. So back to reality. So Padma, you listed uh, quite a few uh, foundations that Bandita Ramabai founded, which were to help women in tough situations. And I was wondering, because these were uh, primarily for women in these bad situations, how were women treated in this period um, and why did Pandita Ramabai have to open these facilities for them? What what was happening? Because they weren't just safe houses, they were schools as well. They were very harsh times. In fact, the 80, from the 18th century onwards in Maharashtra, there were very harsh times for girls and women. There are three stages in a woman's life in India in the 19th century childhood, which she was denied. Girlhood, she was denied. Because the idea of autonomy was completely denied to them. They could not be thinking and feeling subjects. They were stripped of their individuality. But they were at the same time treated like so many dolls for the pleasure of men folk. You know? We have an avalanche, I would say, of autobiographical writings from that period, which all discuss the servitude at home, the drudgery of cooking, but most of all, the denial of a girlhood for, for a high caste woman. The reason I say the denial of a girlhood is because girls were married as infants sometimes. So the normal age was five. They were betrothed to a man or to a boy groom at the age of five. But most of them had to be married before the age of 12 because some of the religious books said that. So they were often married before their puberty, but generally speaking, the norm was that they stayed with their parents until they reached puberty. Uh, and then she was sent to her in-laws when she had her first cycle of menstruation. Okay. So this is why I say that they were denied a girlhood and they are so bitter about it in their autobiographical writings. Um, because they felt that they were sent to a stranger's home wherein they found that suddenly there were so many expectations being made upon the nubile bodies and minds, you know. 
And it's, uh, um, Serena, I've written very recently an article on child sexual abuse in Indian history. Yeah, so it is uh, for the past two centuries. And I was shocked to see the level of uh, sexual abuse done to child brides. And because the nuptial night for many of the child brides was a nightmare. Only because they had not been socialized in any sensible or rational way about what the husband was expecting from them. And women's languages and women's speech, they have left behind accounts of the marital life in very expressive language. And they use a particular metaphor, which I want to tell you. I've taken it from animal history. It's called the predator-prey model. So in their descriptions, they often refer to their husbands as, Oh, I... I was trembling with fear. I felt a tiger was about to enter my bed. Another one says, all I can tell you about my marriage was it was the sting of a scorpion. You know, so they're using animal imagery. Now, you know, in contemporary world, we think of the union of a, a consensual union of two bodies, two human bodies as, as, as a joyful one, giving pleasure, you know, in the sexual act. But you read Indian women's autobiographies, there is no pleasure being expressed regarding their conjugality, only pain. So what does that say? And, you know, the first female autobiographer for India is a Bengali lady called Rash Sundari Devi. Now, Rash Sundari Devi says that she was married at the age of 11, I think, and uh, to a much older landlord. And she says that when I left my mother's home, I felt that it was like a goat offering to a tiger. <laughs> That's how she describes it. And then she goes on to say things like, you know, you know, I do not know. This body is a marvelous thing. It is so many things came out of it. And I had no clue where and the causes of it. She's referring to the 14 children that she gave birth to. <laughs> so you see what I'm saying. They were denied a girlhood. They were not told what marriage is, but they were married off. Many of them become, became very young mothers. You know, it's, it's horrible when you read some of the demographic studies done on 19th century India because many of these young girls they were married before their bodies reached full maturity their pelvis had not grown you know so uh, a large num number of young mothers died in childbirth due to complications my god now if she had the misfortune to become a widow and many of them did because they were married so young the experiences of widowhood was even more miserable you know uh, and Pandita Ramabai in her high caste Hindu woman, she describes it very well. And we also have lots and lots of autobiographical, um, especially in Maharashtra, of widows, you know. And they say that the way they were treated once they became a widow was horrible because A, remarriage was denied to all high caste women. Um, no sooner, she, many of them say, no sooner was my husband's body lit on the funeral pyre I was stripped of all my luxuries, such as wearing colorful saris, the kumkum was. There was actually a ceremony in Maharashtra, which was attended by her relatives, her friends, her family, in which they would take her 
wrist and banged it against the ground to break all her bangles. It's a sign of widowhood. Onwards, you will not wear bangles. The other thing was her red kumkum was taken off, her bindi was taken off her forehead. Then a barber was brought to shave her head off, all her hair. Yeah, it was, it's, it's, it's a terrifying prospect. Um, and then many of the upper caste widows, they were told to sleep on the floor at night. They could only eat one meal a day. And they had to wear coarse cotton saris, usually red, white or brown. To indicate that she's a widow. Now, among Brahmins, it was felt that the, even the shadow of a widow, if it was cast on another Brahmin passing by, his entire day would be ruined. So they were asked to stay in the shadows of the house, the dark corners of the house. So why place these constraints on widows in the first place? I mean, what were people afraid of? It was basically to dim her own sensual feelings by starving her, you know, by making her look ugly. And also so that she wouldn't be lured by anyone else. Like a test of chastity? Yeah. Wow. Wow. Yeah. And because they were married so young, anyway, education was denied to them because it's, it was felt that, you know, what is she going to do with education? Anyway, so only royal princesses and queens had that right of education. And even they had, they were basically, you know, religious poetry was taught to them, you know, so that they could recite a few hymns. Some amount accounting was taught to them because, you know, they came from elite families and wealth was a serious business. Uh, so, but otherwise the rest of 99.9% of I would say confidently, Indian women in the 19th century were illiterate. Wow. I was, I was just wondering as well, like a little sort of question linked back to, to all the organizations she made. What did she teach in the schools? Wonderful question, Serena. And top marks to you for asking this. Because, you know, I have often wondered how she was able to get uh, why did the girls in her schools convert to Christianity, you know? When she kept saying, I am a secular person, I tell, I forbid them from entering my worship room, you know. But the thing was, you see, she, when she went to travel in the USA, she studied the kindergarten system there and she brought it to India. Okay. It's called the Feebles system, you know, it's called Feebles kindergarten system, which was about bringing visual aids in schools. Oh, you know? okay visual aids and like illustrations, you mm. know, woodcuts to make children understand faster, you know. Mm. And so in her schools, part of the curriculum was Manu Shastra. Okay. Which, which is... I thought was very, was excellent. She said they should learn about Hinduism as well. Okay. And when the Widows read about all the horrible things he was saying about Hindu women. <laughs> they said, you know, we are now in a rationalist position to choose what we want. Yeah. Not want this. So yeah. it was an excellent way of teaching. And I feel to this day mm. that if all Indian schools today mm. taught Manu Shastra as part of moral education, whatever it is that they might call it, ethics, you know, it is taught in schools, isn't it? 
they will come to an understanding and it's not just uh, girls who will come to an understanding boys will also come to an understanding <laughs> exactly you know? and and people like you know shiv sena bjp you know i'm sure mm-hmm. their children who will study in the schools will also know what the shastras are about simply yeah. rather than just saying you know oh i heard my grandpa say something and that's what hinduism is also yeah. that's not hinduism so this is what was extraordinary about she was a real visionary you know she knew about the curriculum what should go into a curriculum and you know her many of her schools also they were the first vocational schools in india uh, which believed in uh, she she believed that every woman should be economically independent yeah so she taught a trade you know all the girls were taught trades the widows were taught trade so she had dairy industry weaving carpet uh, and agriculture you know sericulture which is you know um, making silk sarees um, you know so i would say she is also a pioneer in what we now call women's cooperatives mm, you know right. you make them self sufficient yeah so that they don't depend parasitically on a man yeah 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 you know train them up so hard schools were vocational schools so mm. you know how many first have i given you serena here yeah i got from hundreds of things you know the first women's cooperative you know i you know in the in the last 10 years a bangladeshi entrepreneur who brought the first women's cooperative for bangladesh was given a nobel prize Uh, Just think about it. Pandita Ramabai also should be given posthumously a Nobel Prize yeah. for the first women's cooperative. Yeah, <laughs> definitely. Yeah. yeah. Hopefully, when we get this out, there'll be a consideration. We'll start a petition. <laughs> you know the oil pressing industries. You know the number of industries she brought. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, um, just to make women independent of men. You know. Yeah. She said she would say, you know, if. even if if you're not intellectually bright and you can't go into you know vocation like school teaching school teaching was one of the most favored uh, professions for women in that time mm. okay so nursing and school teaching were the two usual occupations that her students went into but those who couldn't go into those were then you know told that you can make yourself useful earn a living you know Mm. Um, and i said dairy industry was one of the most ones she was so clever the first farmers market <laughs> can you imagine <laughs> she, she bought land near pune and she converted them into farmers and the, all the farmers around were so grateful to her mm. because you know she would charge them a certain amount of money they could have their uh, you know um, weekly market and then sell sell their goods yeah you know, so there are so many things that you could attribute to her <laughs> i know the first blind schools in sanskrit oh. in maharashtra were started by her the first wow. orphanages the first boarding schools for girls that's crazy yeah you know and after that they became very fashionable because oh pandita ramabai has opened them you know so right. let's also open them because mm. by then you know the respect that she had garnered mm And now I want to dip a little further back into the past. By a little further, I mean 1887. If that year sounds familiar to you, then it should. It was the year Pandita Ramabai published her most famous work, The High Caste Hindu Woman. 
The reason I returned to this is because I thought about it and what were the virtues that made this a bestseller? And I'm not just talking about India, but, but in the US and in Britain. I think in terms of entrepreneurial skills, she was quite savvy, I would say, to use a modern okay. term. <laughs> because before this, she wrote another book called Stri Dharmaniti, or oh, okay. Manual of Women's Duties. It was a mm. translation of a Sanskrit text. Okay. Uh, but it was mainly done to fund her way to U U.S. Um, to uh, to fund her studies in the U um, in England at the time. Okay. Okay. Similarly, uh, the high caste Hindu woman might it might have started with a lot of her admirers asking her to write a book and saying, "No, please tell us, you know, educate us about this." Okay. And and I think it started it might have started and. Uh, because you see, at that time, the ordinary Westerner would have only heard about Indian customs being injurious to Indian women through missionaries. But missionaries had their own agendas of conversions, right? Mm. So a secular Westerner wanted to hear it from a woman and there's no better a agent than Pandita Ramabai. So mm. I think she got interested to, uh, to write this. Now, it became a bestseller and it sold 9,000 copies in, in the very first year of its issue. That's really good. And of course, it kind of gained her, you know, the status of a very, of a world figure, you know, mm. she became suddenly a world figure. I think that, um, I think if you look at the, um, the way she has written the book, yeah. I would say that uh, there are many clever strategies that she's deploying there. Yeah. Because you see, she shows off her Sanskrit knowledge very well. Yes, so yeah. She constantly translates from the worst misogynist of all Hindu lawgivers, Manu. Yes. <laughs> so she brings oh. it up constantly. But then she doesn't stop there. She said, okay, this is sacred literature. Now I will tell you what profane literature says about Indian women, mm. which is proverbs, folklore, folk sayings. Yeah. And they are even worse, you know, like they're like, you know, like really nasty jokes. Yeah. They sound yes. like nasty jokes. Like, you know, um, what is the worst animal in the world? A snake. But what's worse than a snake? A woman. Yeah. You know, you know, so it's, it's those kind of things. So she brings, she collects oh. them and they kind of hit you on the head, don't they? Yeah. Um, they're, like, they're like the earliest version of the Yo Mama jokes. Yeah. <laughs> so, but this makes very authentic. You know, yeah. and she also writes in very comprehensible language. You know, although mm. she's such a learned scholar, her language is bold. It doesn't mince words. But you see, apart from this juxtaposition between sacred and profane literature, these mm -hmm. ploys, this literary ploys that she's using, she interspersed her narrative with real life cases that are taking place in India at the time. Yeah. And, you know, when she was in Britain also, she becomes extremely famous. You know, everybody wanted to know her from the queen to the prime minister to the parliamentarians. And, you know, she held a chair of Sanskrit in Cheltenham Ladies College, which is the first ladies college in, in Britain for women. That's, that's she held a chair of Sanskrit, yeah. And, and it's not just that, you know, when... The thing about her in this high caste Hindu woman is that she talks about so many different things. She's inserting cases that are relevant at the time. 
you mm. know, and making people realize that, you know, there's no hope for women in India, whether they are under Hindu rule or British rule, you know, she says things like this. And then she talks about how millions of years of slavery has turned the Indian woman into a slave and her progeny into slaves. And now all this progeny also craved to be ruled by other nations. So she's yeah. very cleverly tying it up with Indian nationalism. Yeah. You know? And I think that that is what made that book very famous because not just Americans and British people, even Indians had to read that book. Yeah. She's saying stuff like, you know, she's saying, no spirit of daring, I'm quoting her now, no spirit of daring, no ardor, no enterprise, no self-reliance, no anything. If you ask me what the Indians have, it is just no, no, no. <laughs> wow. They are completely deprived of self-reliance, energy to do anything. And then they say, why are we being ruled by another person? Mm. You know? and, she, and then she ties it up with Indian motherhood very cleverly. She said, you're making a child wife, a child mother. Yeah. How can she give birth to children? who can lead this nation out of slavery. So the high caste Hindu woman is more than, I would say it's a very polemical tract. Yeah. You know, it's, it, it's written in the style of a patriot as well, not just for the amelioration of Hindu women, but it is also the amelioration of India's future. You see? Yeah. Yeah, I think that yeah. that's what is important about the book. So the book... You're asking me how and why it, why it, um, it's shot to fame. It's for all these reasons. Yeah. You know, it's not just a woman's tract. It's a polemical, polemical tract. It's a political tract. Mm. You know? um, it is for the welfare of India that she was writing. And, yeah. and that's why she's, uh, you know, people took notice of it. And I didn't want to bring this up too early because I wanted the listeners to have a good idea about about what Pandita Ramabai was doing. Um, but did being a widow actually affect her social standing and her and her success? Did it provide like more challenges for her? Or yes, it I, think it affect- it did. Okay. It did. I think maybe you know if her husband had been alive and because he was a lawyer, mm. she'd have an you know extra comfort and support from, from a male figure. Right. Um, but but I, I actually think her single act of conversion damned her. Oh, okay. It's very unfortunate. Yeah. Um, and, you know, it's a continuing, I feel, legacy as well to damn her in future as well, like not restore her to her greatness. It's a shame people don't really know about her. That's because she's not taught in the curriculum, you see, when she should be. Yeah. And, you know, there's so many words to describe her. So how would you describe her? Like, is there is there one title that she fits under? Or or was she predominantly an activist, a feminist? But she's a bit more. And here mm. I want to read out to you what some of her contemporaries talk, thought about her. So this yes. very famous American missionary called Nicole McNichol, he says, Pandita is a true product of India's past and a powerful fashioner of India's future in Mm. his biography of her in 1926. Okay. He also said about her that she's a dangerous innovator and transgressor of ancient laws because she was someone who believed in revolution and not evolution. 
Now, this is a crucial difference because you see, Gandhi was was somebody who did not believe in revolution. Yeah. You know, he was somebody who said, let's adapt the Hindu past. Let's mm. continue the Hindu past. Mm. And when you don't make a break, a clean break with the past, you don't get good results. Yeah. Yeah. Now, Professor Max Miller, who held the chair of Sanskrit in Oxford University, he said this about Pandita Ramabai, and I'm quoting him. She's one of the pioneers of Indian reform, along with Ma Ram Mohan Roy, who's yes. a figure himself. Okay. Yeah. Now, Dr. Anandibai Joshi, who was the first female doctor for Western India, she said in 1886, Pandita Ramabai was the champion of oppressed Indian womanhood by her courage. And she has caused, through her courage, she has caused great yogis to quail before her. Okay. Mm. A.B. Shah, who has collated her correspondences and her letters and to whom we owe everything we know about Pandita Ramabai. Pandita Ramabai is one of the greatest Indians I've had the privilege of knowing. So, see, in all these definitions that are given you or the praise that people have given her, she's acknowledged not just as a feminist, women's rights activist, scholar, but also one of the greatest Indians. Now, for Ram Mohan Roy, Indian historians say that Ram Mohan Roy was the founder of modern India and the first modern India. Yes. Okay. I would say that Pandita Ramabai, by being a secular person, a patriot, somebody who fought for equal rights, not just for women, but for low caste, mm. and long before Gandhi came, I would say she is also a founder of modern India. Yeah, from everything. Ram Mohan Roy, but alongside him, yeah. she definitely has a place. Yeah. You know, because she is the first Indian woman for so many unique projects, which I told you. And we haven't talked about it, but she was also part of the political sphere. She also addressed the, she was the first woman delegate to address the Indian National Congress in 1889. Oh. And she made all congressmen in 1889 pledge to her that they would not consummate their marriages if they had a bride below 14 years of age. Wow. And she made them also pass a resolution to say that any widow who remarried under the Widow Remarriage Act of 1856 would still have the right to inherit property from her first husband. You see what the British did? They damned themselves. You know, mm. they would... They acted like they were liberals, but then they would add a clause which would damn the entire law. So the yes. Widow Remarriage Act of 1856 basically said a Hindu widow could remarry. But when the Hindu widow came forward to remarry and found that she could not inherit property from her first marriage, why would she? Yeah. You see? So Pandita Ramabha examined all these laws and she said, remove these loopholes. Yeah. She was a pioneer in so many fields. I also wanted to ask, because it's not like Pandita Ramabai has never been on anything, but, so, for example, in 1989, she was featured on the stamp in India, but that that was it. Um, so do you think that this is enough? Because I would say that she has been, uh, you know, honoured by many people since then. You know, okay. she has a named feast in the Episcopal Church of USA. Mm -hmm. Similarly, she has a feast in her name by the Church of England. And you may not know this, but I can tell you that almost all South Indian Christian communities, mm -hmm. when a Christian girl comes of age in Southern India, 
she's gifted with Pandita Ramabai's autobiography. A testament. Oh, so it's that. continuing, you know, honoring of what and what she meant. Okay. Mm. But I feel that the abundance in writing about her is not enough. Yeah. Because the people who need to be educated in India today are the ones who deny equal rights to minorities. They deny rights to women. They deny rights to children. So this kind of formidable education, if you believe that education is a tool, then this kind of formidable education can only happen in the field of public history, which is what mm. you see, Serena. Exactly. Okay? It has to be in our face all the time in order to make people understand that you are ignorant, remove your ignorance. Exactly. You know? <laughs> so I would say that, you know, I'm not uh, so sectarian that I would say that only Pandita Ramabai should appear on the rupee for the rest of our lives. I'm not saying that. I would say at least one month in a year, she should figure on the Indian rupee. That'd be pretty good. Because I feel like, you know, night well, not... it rotates. It rotates. Yeah. The yeah. Generations are also are not allowed to forget about her. And this is where I get quite confused, which isn't the first time in my life, but that's another story. Um, because this year, I think in February, um, the Reserve Bank of India, or the RBI, they re-released the notes as a series um, called the Mahatma Gandhi series. So I think they just um, enhanced it. But there have been opportunities to change the historical figure on the note. So it's not like it can't be done. And I suppose that kind of leads me to my next question, because if if institutions haven't recognised figures like Bandita Ramabai, do you think she's been purposely left out, you know, because she was challenging the Hindu order and and her own conversion to Christianity, for instance? Like, How far do you agree with that statement? I think there is some truth in that, that caste Hindus... Because she faced a great deal of hostility from caste Hindus, and especially Maharashtra, as you know, is a mm. hotbed of highly intolerant, uh, uh, highly intolerant um, sects, yeah. SCCTS, you know, cults within Hinduism, I feel. And, you know, especially starting with the great nationalist leader, B.G. Tilak. Yeah. Uh, but also I feel that there's another reason why she's purposely, I wouldn't say she's purposely left out of Indian history, but unintentionally is because I feel the whole enterprise of writing history is still very much a, a his story. Yes. Yeah. You know, H-I-S story it is rather than her stories. Yeah. Her stories are relegated to the background. Mm. You know? It's weird that you point that out because when I was starting the project and I typed in on Google um, the most famous Indians or famous historical Indians, the first results that came up were obviously Gandhi. But they were predominantly men. They had, you know, Ambedkar, Vallabhai Patel, um, the King Ashoka, um, Shah Jahan, but there were no women. Yeah. Uh, and I feel that. It is the historian's job as well. It is not just the job of um, the ordinary person to read about. Everybody should be there in that history, not just him. Mm. Is it about episodes? Is it about events? Or is it about great men? You know, We have to start fundamentally questioning the discipline of history and what goes into it. So it's that time now where I need to ask you, 
How do you think the government of India would react if people wanted Pandita Ramabai to be on the note? <laughs> I think that um, if they were to go purely on the basis of her Sanskrit learning, that she was a high caste Hindu woman, her father had served as a Brahmin priest in a royal court, you know, purely based on religious ground, they might actually be responsive to, to that idea and put her on the rupee. But yeah. I have a feeling the fact that she converted to Christian might not make the present government very amenable to the idea of her going on the rupee. Yeah. Um, you know, because uh, what we need is a secular government to understand the impulse of secularism. Yeah. Yeah, I feel like if we just abandon the secular approach when it comes to um, looking at historical figures, then we end up purposely leaving out certain historical figures. Or may maybe it depends, depending on whose point of view it is, they're, they're purposely leaving out these historical figures, whereas some people are accidentally leaving them out. And uh, I do have one final question before we wrap up. So considering all the issues that women faced in the past, um, how many of them do you believe have been tackled since Ramabai's time, considering the changing culture and the changing mentality and uh, women slowly gaining more rights? You know, how much progress have we made? Mm, I would say it's a mixed bag. Many have been solved, but only in theory. Mm. Well, I would say the rhetoric differs greatly from reality yeah and yeah. the reality still seems a distant dream for women so to give you an example of child marriage which was a very dear subject to Pandita Ramabai she wanted to ban it uh, she empathized with child brides and their and their uh, sufferings mm -hmm. you know now a very re I'm quoting from a recent UNICEF re report which gives us horrible statistics, horror statistics. It says more than 47% of underage girls of the world who are married live in India. And wow. one amongst three of them is a child bride. That's, Isn't that that's, a shocking statistic? Yeah. So I would say that we have a still a very long way to go. Definitely. And in fact, I feel that there is a retrenching of patriarchy in India. We have to be very vigilant as women that our, we should be very vigilant of the fact that our rights need to be guarded, you know? Yeah, and, yeah. And we need to fight for it. And if we can pull out as many historical figures as we can from the past who can support our cause, we should. Yeah, definitely. Absolutely yeah. agree. And that brings an end to the Saraswati of the British Raj. So clearly Pandita Ramabai had women's best interests at heart. But today, where has all that progress gone? Maybe it's time to re-examine women's role in history and today in the present. So I want to say thank you Padma for bringing in this really interesting discussion, both about Pandita Ramabai and about, um, and about um, feminist culture in India as well. Thank you, Serena, for listening to me and what I have to say on the fascinating figure of Pandita Ramabai. So as I mentioned in part one, um, there's going to be a bonus content episode which focuses more on India's present as opposed to its past, but it's still just as relevant. So, uh, so stay tuned for any updates, also keep an eye on Twitter 
and and I will catch up to you history fiends soon. Asian crew out.